Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. This is the first and inaugural uh, episode of this podcast that I'm launching as sort of an experiment to see whether or not I can expand beyond writing columns, writing the newsletters. When I originally started writing about three or four years ago now, I started out, the goal was just to write a column a week. That ended up landing into a twice column a week and then a newsletter. And now the next iteration seems to be to try out podcasting to see if see if it works. So we're going to try out a few episodes here, get some feedback, and go from there. Um, goal is eventually to maybe try to get on a few guests, but for now it's just me trying out this medium. Um, as you heard, I do have a newsletter. If you're new, make sure to sign up for that at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. You can also find my twice-weekly column on Mondays and Fridays at the Conservative Institute. And you can also give me a follow on Twitter at DevonCI. So part of the reason that I've started this is I want to try out talking through different subjects that I don't always have time to write about every week. There's enough happening in the world that you could write a column every day, and some political writers do, and then they throw a podcast on top of that. I don't want to write more, but I do enjoy listening to podcasts, and so I'm going to throw this out there and see whether or not I can also join in the conversation. Podcasting's fun, and it's fun to listen to. And so I just want to be able to highlight some of the topics that I read about and that I talk about with my friends and text about with my friends and bring them here. One of those topics that I wanted to touch on is um, that's it's fun to write about. It just can get old really quick is horse race politics because that's one of my favorite things to talk about. I think I at least text one friend about that a day at least. Um, and, and there's just always interesting things happening. Uh, for instance, start out with the Republican side of the horse race. You have a new primary challenger to Donald Trump. Uh, and if you follow the history on primary challengers in the past, usually you do see one. Even if there is a popular elected president, you saw um, George H.W. Bush had a challenge to the right and Pat Buchanan in the early 90s. And then that sort of faded um, when George W. Bush took office in the 2000s. He didn't have one, but that was also because he was massively popular by the time that you saw the primary season roll around because he was coming in after 9-11 and he was massively popular and the Democratic field was pretty split when it started. So while in the past you can go back into the 20th century and find primary challengers, you don't always see them, at least in the past 20-some-odd years, 2025. And the new challenger that we have who announced on Sunday is former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. He's the first to officially, well, he's not the first to jump in. There's another guy named Bill Weld, former governor, who has seen almost no traction at all. He's more of a libertarian. Joe Walsh is more of a Tea Party conservative. Uh, And it's interesting to see Walsh jump in just because of what he represents from the Tea Party side. Even you go back and you read uh, American Carnage, an excellent book by Tim Alberta, you see some of these flamethrower types jump out during the Tea Party era. Uh, some of them are more of the Sarah Palin types, and that's the that's really more the mold that Joe Walsh falls into. I'll pull up some of the tweets there that he's 
I can't actually say some of the tweets that he said just because they're so firebomby and just radical. Um, because he would step into things like race. He was a big pusher of Obama being a Muslim. He was very heavy into the birther movement. He's just said all kind of manner of things. The stepping in all kinds of grenades involving the Black Lives Matter movement. So it's interesting to see some on the right, and emphasis on some, because Donald Trump has a 90% approval rating among Republicans. It's interesting to see some people jump on the Walsh train when they've called Donald Trump characterly unfit, when in reality Walsh is very much the same thing that they accuse Donald Trump of being. You mostly see Walsh's support come from what I would call the bulwark crowd. And these are going to be your Bill Crystal types, where they oppose Trump from the beginning. And it's anyone but Trump for them. It's not just, it's a never Trump, which largely died out after the 2016 primaries. It's anyone but Trump. And some of these people have moved on to Democrats and supporting them. I used to see this pro most prominently with Tom Nichols, who goes on a couple of the Sunday talk shows and will blast Republicans all day long, and it ultimately is going to switch and vote for some form of a Democrat in the end. Um, but it's really it's the really fully fleshed out Never Trump movement, most represented by the Bulwark crowd of Charlie Sykes and Bill Kristol. They're supporting Walsh, or at least pumping Walsh up as a challenger, and you can read this a couple of ways, I think. The first is that you bring Walsh out, and it's just sort of anyone you can get to out there to challenge Trump in the primaries, and this is just sort of throwing pasta at the wall just to see what sticks, and they're just hoping anyone sticks at this stage to challenge Trump. But the other way to read this is that Walsh isn't and ultimately a real candidate in the sense that he's going to actively try to win the primaries. You could think of him more as just an opening salvo against Trump in the primaries, a way to sort of till the field to allow a real challenger step in. Uh, like I said, Bill Weld's not really a threat to Trump in any way just because he's a libertarian. He doesn't. He runs a very uh, moderate campaign, and he's not a flamethrower like Walsh, who will try to get headlines by saying outlandish things in a way to challenge Trump. Um, the way to read Walsh, I think, most correctly is that he's a way to till the field to allow a bigger candidate to come forth. And we know that Crystal, just in news reports, has gone after people like John Kashich, former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. Um, big names. Mark Sanford will be in there, too, con former congressman out of South Carolina. Uh, these are real politicians with real beliefs and real positions who at one point in time had had a big career, but now in the age of Trump, they've sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And so w the way you could see Walsh stepping in would be to help clear the air and provide room for a bigger candidate as sort of a proof of concept that you can challenge Trump, you can get the media headlines, and that there is potentially an audience there for a primary challenge. I don't ultimately think 
either of these things will work, whether it's just a true head-on challenge or a sort form of a stalking horse. I don't think this is going to work just because, for starters, Trump is popular. You can't undercut, just, you can't get around the fact that he has a 90% approval rating. And the other thing is, is that whatever fractions or factions exist that oppose Trump or don't like him, a primary challenge is far more likely to end up consolidating Trump's support around him so it could end up backfiring and help pump Trump up by giving him someone on the right to punch as you know as a form of a rhetorical punching bag, someone to show, hey, I can flex my muscle and I can still win. And when you're talking about electability, especially when you have Joe Biden out there as probably the, tr- the closest thing you have to a true blue uh, person who could beat Trump in a general election, a primary challenge would allow Trump to show that he's a winner again, allow him, give him a reason to do the big rallies and to attack a candidate on Twitter. So I don't ultimately know why they're pushing a primary challenge, just because it seems like it has, it's not just that it's a long shot, it it would seem that it would do the exact opposite, which is to help Trump consolidate his base, get all the Republicans to circle the wagons, to celebrate the successes that he's had, and march towards a 2020 general election where he's vanquished somebody in the primaries, no matter who it is, and ultimately won, quote-unquote won, even though Everything is aligned against the primary challenger. All the states are aligned against it. Trump has taken over the infrastructure of the National Republican Party, and all the state Republican parties are largely going to follow the cues of the national uh, group at this time. So Joe Walsh, for all the press covers he's going to get all weekend and all this week for launching something new, he'll be on all the big podcasts, he'll be going across all the news. I don't see this doing anything long-term, primarily because he's just he's not going to win in a place like Iowa or especially not New Hampshire, where those states, Iowa, Trump's going to be popular. He's going to win that state. And even if he's not popular in a place like New Hampshire, uh, Joe Walsh isn't going to be popular either. I think that's probably the most interesting part. The only person who's visited any of these states that I know of is John Kashich, who is the Ohio's governor, who dropped out super late in 2016, uh, along with Ted Cruz. And Kasich's play is to go into a moderate state like New Hampshire and provide a counter from what you would call a, the more moderate wing of the Republican Party and counter Trump there in a place where he wouldn't be quite as popular as he would in a place like, say, Iowa or South Carolina, where there are more whites and more evangelicals. So the true challenge is to be able to pull off a state from Trump. Walsh isn't going to be able to do that. He can get the headlines just by saying outlandish things, but he's not going to be able to compete anywhere because anywhere he could compete, Trump would beat him. John Kasich, on the other hand, could potentially compete in some of these states, but he's also, he faces the problem of he's just not liked by anyone across the Republican establishment. And some of the other names, like Bill Weld and Jeff Lake, also face the same problem. And Mark Sanford, who's probably the best conservative candidate here, he has the weird past, weird story, because he's the guy who was in office and then all of a sudden mysteriously vanished one day. His 
staff said he was out hiking the Appalachian Trail when it turns out he was conducting an affair with a woman in Argentina. And it was a crazy story when it happened at the time and blew everybody away. And he still ended up in Congress. And he has a conservative record, but he also has this crazy baggage of having an affair with a woman in Argentina while saying he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. It was just a crazy story. And so you have all these really flawed candidates who say they can provide a primary challenge for Trump, but it doesn't really seem like they could provide anything substantive in a way of challenging Trump in really any way possible. And it's much more likely that it's going to it'll cause a backlash that'll give Trump consolidation and even a further control of the party they're saying that they want to primary him in. So that's the current state of the Republican side. The big, the big stories are always going to be on the other side of the aisle. It's the Democrats because they have a massive field. Uh, we lost one with Seth Moulton who stepped out of the race, which if you're sitting there asking who's that, I don't blame you because no one really knows who he is. Um, but while we're losing that one, you have other guys like Tom Steyer, who's a billionaire, dumping just truckloads of money in a place like Iowa where he's he's bumping up in the polls some, and while he's not showing up in the national polls, he's eventually going to play some kind of factor in Iowa just because of all the resources and the money that he's dropping in that state. Um, and even given all that, on the Democratic side, it's, it's Biden's race to lose. Uh, he seems to be doing everything that he can to lose the race at the time at this moment just with all of his gaps, And the, the thing about Biden that I think hurts him the most right now is his just the perception of his health. He was he goes into some of these states, I think it was it was either Vermont or New Hampshire. And while he was there on a campaign trail, he said he was in the other state. Like he was in New Hampshire, but then he said, you know, Vermont, this is a nice place in Vermont, or it was the other way around. I forget which way it was. And so it's little things like that that people look at on the Democratic side and they're wondering to themselves, is he all there? Uh, for me, I, I don't really hold that against him just because I think that's just typical when you're hitting the tra- campaign trail and going to city to city and state to state. I don't really hold that against him. But I did tell one friend after I was watched, I think it was the second round of the Democratic debates, that Joe just didn't look good, healthily. And I'm, I'm not trying to push a conspiracy theory like you saw with Clinton in the 2016. It's just that Joe looked thin in the second round of debates. Like, like he was losing weight in an unhealthy way, not that he was losing weight because he was overweight. Um, and that perception of... Being older and looking unhealthy, it makes people nervous. I remember this came up in 2008 with McCain. You had Obama out here who was young and vibrant and giving great, massive stadium-sized speeches, and you have McCain who was old then. And it just it it's this contrast that that comes out with Biden when you compare him with a lot of the other contenders, even Elizabeth Warren, who's in her 70s. She has more energy than you see with Biden running around on the campaign trail. And so, while it is Joe's race to lose, there are there's a reason that he's lost all of the primaries in the past. He struggled because he eventually says something that he can't recover from. He almost had that with against Kamala Harris, but 
the problem with Kamala Harris is that even while she can attack another candidate, she can't defend her own record. It's one of the more unusual things I've ever seen where she launches these attacks and then when someone comes at her with a predictable attack on her uh, her record as a prosecutor where she I mean people call her as they call her a cop because she threw a lot of people in jail and was against a lot of criminal justice reform in the state of California, mind you. And they bring that up to her in a primary which is tilted towards far left progressives who don't want the strong prosecutor running for president, and she falls apart. These are predictable attacks that she should be expecting and she's not able to respond to them. And so while she should be able to vault ahead of Joe Biden on paper, she's struggling because she doesn't have a way to defend her own record, which is really odd for a presidential candidate. Um, And so the dynamic you have now is with a few candidates beginning to drop out in the Democratic Party, it's that everybody's trying to hang around just long enough to where they can make it to whatever debate stage that is where there's only one night. Right now they're having to do run two nights because there's 20 plus candidates. And with that many people, it's just impossible to show yourself on stage and create a moment for yourself when you're crowded with that many people. So what you're seeing is that people are trying to use niche um, ideas, niche plans to set themselves apart, not really to jump into ahead of the race, but to get to that 1% to 2% in the polls that allows them to prove that they have some amount of staying power so they can stick around just long enough to have their moment down the road. I think the most prominent version of this is uh, Julian Castro, who released a animal welfare plan from his campaign that focuses on things like federal laws on animal abuse, big game hunting, um, and just and vaccinations and spading, neutering, neutering your pets, and providing ways for the federal government to give payments for this, to give them to pets, to give them to pet owners, and it's it really is a different plan that's not meant to get him in the top of the race but to give him a small sector of the electorate that will support him because animal welfare is just their thing and somebody's talking about it, so it's going to boost him in the polls, get him some positive headlines, and get him into these debates where he can stick around and try to have that moment, that breakout moment, because if you fall too far behind and you start falling out of these debates, unless you're Tom Steyer and you've got millions upon millions of money of your own money to dump into some of these early primary states, you're not going to be able to stick around because you're going to run out of money and you're going to run out of support and you won't be able to get that stage on the Democratic field. Um, With Harris taking a step back, outside of Biden, the person getting the most positive press is Elizabeth Warren. And this is sort of a strange phenomenon, too, because she's easily, aside from Biden, easily the weakest of this field in just an electability, from an electability standpoint. Elizabeth Warren's problem is that she's just not likable compared to your average Democrat. Uh, one of the things that uh, election experts will use is they'll, they use a thing called the generic ballot. And that is, how are voters supporting... It's just a generic Democrat 
or a generic Republican. And what you find is that when you stick Elizabeth Warren up to just a generic Democrat, she underperforms voters, uh, the likability of voters to... She underperforms um, just a generic Democrat by a pretty sizable margin, too. It's, it's something like three points. Like in, in her home state of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren underperformed Hillary Clinton's vote totals in 2018 by about three points. And in a blue wave election year for Democrats, when they had every advantage going to her, if you can't outperform the last Democratic presidential candidate who won your state easily, that says something about some internal weaknesses in your own election campaign, your electability, your likability. It's not a sexist thing because it's her home state that doesn't like her as much as a generic Democrat. She's running behind several other candidates in her state right now in the presidential primaries. She's not leading that. And that's telling when you're looking at her trying to jump to the top of these polls on the national level that when she just compared to a generic Democrat, she underperforms it, which I think part of the reason she can't vault over Biden is because people just view Biden as your average generic Democrat. And so that's getting all the time and space right now because that's what people are expected and expecting in the race and they want to support. Bernie Sanders is obviously this extreme socialist out here. And while some think he and Warren are splitting the progressive side of the vote, I just think Bernie has a built-in support system in the Democratic field where he's the true blue socialist, and if that's what you want, you've got him. And there's no reason for him to leave because he's got between the poll you look at between 10 to 15 support in the party, which is enough to keep going forward. Elizabeth Warren is a little bit more like Kamala Harris and that she's high right now because she's getting all this positive press. But once that dries up and people start measuring her electability, the question is how how is that going to support how, where is her support going to come from if she doesn't have that positive press? Because she she clearly underperforms when you put her up just to generic Democrats and so she can't beat that. The question is can she beat Trump in a general election because while she may have all these plans that are great and they're big, um, they're not they're not general election material. And her response to that has been, well, if you're running for president, why are you running on a small platform? Which, you know, fair question. If you're going to run for president, you would think you would have some big ideas. But hers are almost too big for a general election, and it's costing her support from just a generic Democrat. And because she can't pull that in, she can't really make a climb at Biden right now. And some people think that if, you know, if Bernie just drops out, the, all the vote, or his vote would consolidate behind her. And while that may be the case, there's really no reason for Biden, I mean, for Bernie to drop out. He took Hillary Clinton to the convention last time, and he doesn't have any reason to do that now. He can see what happens. And if he does that, he can claim that the convention is rigged against him. He's already sort of projecting some of that now by saying that the Democratic field the Democratic press, um, and progressives in general are trying to tilt the field against them. And when you go back and look at some of the leaks from WikiLeaks in 2016, that definitely happened by the establishment in the Democratic Party. They tilted the field in favor of Clinton and away from Bernie. And if you're seeing them sort of do the same thing with Elizabeth Warren, she's getting all the positive press. They're trying to tilt 
the progressed young progressive vote away from Bernie and into Warren's camp, and it's not really working so far. Uh, it's just, it's not something that they're successfully able to do because Bernie has this built-in support of people who want to support him, they want his version of socialism, and they want his plan, and they don't want any of these other knockoffs in the field who are trying to appeal to those voters, even though they probably should be trying to go towards trying to break down Biden's voters. They're still trying to break apart the Bernie coalition in order to build up their own support. But if they're, if Bernie's voters are willing to leave him, I don't think they're going to be loyal to anybody else. So that's a look at both of the major parties. Um, it's Trump's on the Republican side, and it's Bernie's on the Democratic side. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon unless, and just, I mean, in Trump's case, the only way he gets a successful challenge is if a bigger name jumps in and we're in the middle of a recession, which encourages Republicans to leave him in droves. That's not the case now. While there are hints of a recession, there's just nothing to, to break them away. And then on the Democratic side, it's just somebody is going to eventually have to try and beat Biden, and no one's proven that they can do that so far. Kamala Harris had her moment. You're probably going to see her try to do a campaign reset here in the next few weeks. She, in the latest CNN polls, she went from you know around 15 to 18 percent to now she was back at five. So she immediately fell out of the top tier after just getting pummeled at the last debates. So she's got to prove that she can bounce back from that, and I don't know that she can because she's got to learn how to defend herself and her policies, something that she has not been able to do in the six to nine months that she's been on the trail. So it's it's a tall order for her, but, you know, look for the campaign reset. Everyone else is trying to take her voters, and that's sort of the two parties. The two things that I've written about that you should probably watch out for, the obvious one is the economy and a recession. If we see a recession, Trump's in big trouble just because I I know he's trying to set the stage to blame like the Fed, um, to blame China, or blame anything. But when it comes to the economy, if it sinks on your watch as president, the voters always blame the person in office. They blame George H.W. Bush when there was a mild, very mild recession, and they blamed him for raising taxes during that time, too. Those two things sunk his campaign and allowed Clinton to come in and swoop through and, gain, and grab all the moderate voters out from under Bush. They then, in turn, also credited Clinton with the same economy. And what cost him was his character in the end. That's one of the ways that uh, George W. Bush was able to beat out Al Gore, was that he could just say that, I will continue these same economic policies, but I won't have the character of someone from the Clinton administration. And then Al Gore is just sort of a robotic bore, so that didn't help him either. But, and then you saw it again at the end of George Bush's, the thing that sunk McCain was the economy. So whatever person or party is in power, they typically get the blame if things are bad. And so that's just, that's the million dollar question. Where is the economy going to be a year from November? Is it going to be booming again? Or is it going to be teetering on the edge of a recession? And it's a question that we don't really know the answer to. There's a lot of unrest. You've got another version of Brexit coming along with the UK trying to decide how it's going to leave the European Union. Um, There is unrest with Italy, with their elections. Uh, You have no idea what's going to happen there. But the, I guess the 800-pound gorilla in the room is without a doubt the trade war with China. That's going to dictate 
a lot it seems like going forward just because there's there's just there's no there's just a lot of distance between the two countries and where they are the latest reports said that Trump wanted to drop even more tariffs on them than he already did so that really could trigger a recession it could trigger just a lot of things um, just with how tariffs work and how it punishes a lot of the people who vote for Trump. And so the more that that goes on, the more it could potentially depress his supporters moving forward. And then the second thing, apart from the recession that I think is interesting to watch, is just going to be how the Jeffrey Epstein case ends up evolving over time because it's just the Wall Street Journal had a, had a story over the weekend where they identified a a uh, big executive who was talking about how he was just fooled by Epstein and then you had one of the royals put out an entire statement talking about all his time and how he didn't know any of that about Epstein so since his death there's been a lot of people who have come out and tried to distance themselves as much as they can from Jeffrey Epstein and who he is and I don't know how long that will hold up just because the prosecutors are still working through. There was definitely a conspiracy charge that was included in the case, and so that is going to dictate a lot of what ends up coming through in the end. And so it could end up implicating people who could have importance to the 2020 election. So that's about all I have for today. This was going to be just, a, like I said, a test run to see how it was to talk through here. So I appreciate any feedback that you might have. And I look forward to recording again. And we'll see you next time.